think founding stories are really important to the long-term trajectories of organizations. And the stories of a group of racially diverse, gender diverse community activists in Long Beach, California, who got together and said, we believe that there's a different future of aging waiting for us. This was 1977, 45 years ago. They got together and they said, it can be different, it should be different, and it will be different. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. On this podcast, we talk about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. Only 20% of overall health is determined by medical services. We are here to talk about the other 80%, housing, food, social connections, and how to move rapidly and equitably towards whole person health in this country. If we are going to be successful at delivering whole person health to all Americans, it's clear we're going to need heart-driven organizations with purpose at their center. But that's not enough. We also need those organizations to scale. That's the question we're considering with Sachin Jain today. Sachin is the president and CEO of Scan Group and Scan Health Plan, a $3.4 billion nonprofit that serves over 220,000 members. He has worked across the health sector in clinical medicine, academia, pharma, and government. I sat down with Sachin to talk about SCAN's journey of growth and diversification. In the last two years, the 4.5-star nonprofit Medicare plan, founded by community activists in the 1970s, has announced a merger with Care Oregon, launched verticals focused on people experiencing homelessness and LGBTQ elders, and expanded to new markets. Sachin and I talk about scaling with purpose, today's leadership gap, and what's possible with longer time horizons. So please welcome Sachin Jane to The Other 80. What's most important to know about you that could be very personal or very professional, but at, at, at the core, what should our listeners know about you as a person? I am a physician by training and have been on a journey to try to make healthcare better for the last 20 years and feel like it's only getting worse. And so I'm in a moment of reflection where I am beginning to think about how we can make the next 20 years more impactful than the last uh, and really drive towards the kind of healthcare system that we all want for ourselves. I loved something you shared about Care More, which was your previous role, which is how you fell in love with it. I'm someone who believes that love is a part of work, both love for people, but also love for the work itself. And I'd like to bring that concept into your current role at SCAN and ask, what made you fall in love or crush with SCAN? What were the things that inspired you to leave something you love so much to come to something else? So I led Caremore for five and a half years, and what you describe about falling in love with it was right. Um, this was a company that had a bespoke model that was really focused on uh, providing innovative care delivery solutions to older adults in a way that was, I think, truly patient-centered and very revolutionary. And the heart and the spirit of the people at that company uh, was extraordinary. And um, at the same time, uh, it, you know, factually, it was a uh, for-profit company that was a division of a publicly traded company 
Uh, and I wanted to see what you could do in an environment where you weren't necessarily held to meeting your quarterly earnings targets. Because I think even though we did a good job of balancing that at Caremore, um, I would say there's opportunities to do even more when you're thinking about returns and patient care in like longer horizons, five or 10 year increments. And SCAN has just an incredible founding story. I think founding stories are really important to, you know, kind of the long-term trajectories of organizations. And, you know, the story is of a group of racially diverse, gender diverse community activists in Long Beach, California, who got together and said, we believe that there's a different future of aging waiting for us. This was 1977, 45 years ago. Uh, they got together and they said, it can be different, it should be different, and it will be different. And I still you know, sometimes put up this slide of what they imagined, which was just this incredible network of community-based organizations partnering together to keep older adults in their homes. And if I changed the typeface and make it, made it look a little bit more modern, you would think it was a slide from today. I mean, um, so much of what I've learned working in healthcare over the last couple of decades is what is old is new and what is new is old. And so um, these were folks who, who were all about social determinants of health before people even knew to call them those. And, um, and so again, I think the foundations are here for an organization that can be and has been truly impactful uh, on a national scale. And so that was the exciting opportunity. And, um, you know, we've been on a journey of growth. We've been on a journey of diversification. We've been on a, a journey of doubling and tripling down on our commitment to frail and vulnerable populations. Uh, and um, more recently, we announced our combination with Care Oregon, uh, which is, uh, you know, kind of a sister organization uh, that's focused on, on Medicaid and Oregon. We're really trying to create a sustainable future for nonprofit healthcare uh, that is you know, more about patients than it is about profits. There has been a lot of growth in news, as you say. Um, it was pretty exciting to look through that as I prepared for this. And one thing really stood out to me, which is this image of a nationally scaled nonprofit health plan which immediately brings to mind the for-profit scaled versions of that. And I'm wondering, what is that opportunity that you're driving for to have a nationally scaled nonprofit option? And how might that look at its core or, or superficially different from the familiar options we know of, what, you know, whether that's Optum or something else? Yeah, so, you know, Claudia, you and I first met when um, we were both working at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. And I think we both, you know, worked together at a time when there was an incredible ethos around service to people, service to country. Um, and I've now worked in for-profit healthcare. Uh, I've also worked in not-for-profit healthcare. And I would say that ethos for service that I think was so attractive to us when we were working in government uh, exists in spades, you know, within nonprofit organizations that are focused on government programs. And it's always struck me a little bit that the federal government, you know, delegates a lot of healthcare to for-profit entities, when in fact, there's a lot of not-for-profit entities that, uh, you know, I think have the ability to deliver care in a compassionate way that's focused more on communities and people than it is on quarterly earnings targets. Um, I'm not somebody who I think 
you know, says for-profit is bad and not-for-profit is good. There's plenty of bad behavior of not-for-profits and plenty of good behavior by for-profits. But I am someone who thinks that on the margins, when companies are making decisions, their kind of founding motive plays a, an important part in how they actually execute on those decisions. And so I sometimes think that if SCAN had a more aggressive growth trajectory in the late 90s and early 2000s, then we would be talking about Medicare Advantage for All uh, because we do it right. Uh, we do it in a way that I think coordinates the care of frail populations. We're high quality, four and a half stars times you know the last six years. Um, we have the highest consumer satisfaction rates of any health plan in the state of California, 92%. There are things that really are working uh, from a systems perspective you know, within our organization. doesn't mean we can't be better. doesn't mean we don't have lots of opportunities to do more for our members, but consider the alternatives. You and I probably both get our, our health care from a national or from a regional plan um, that may not be quite as oriented around communities and people. And that feels different. When you call a call center, um, that feels different. When you need something, when you have a problem, that feels different. And um, I sometimes liken us to the local bookstore, you know, in the era of Amazon and in the era of Barnes and Nobles and Borders. Um, and people like coming to our stores more. They get better service. But I think the existential challenge to regional nonprofit healthcare uh, is scale. It's scale and it's investment uh, because there's lots of kind of venture backed and private equity backed companies on one side. And then there's also the big nationals on the other side. And even though our combined revenues of SCAN and Care Oregon come together, you know, we, we pass our regulatory process, will be, um, you know, in excess of, of seven or eight billion dollars. Um, you know, we're still, I think, small players in the grand scheme of, of U.S. healthcare. But our goal, I think, is to be the biggest small company. And what I mean by that is to remain community-based, uh, to remain member-focused and patient-focused, uh, and, and frankly, provider-centered. I mean, I think that's another piece of it that's missing. So much of the abrasion and the source of burnout in the healthcare is at the interface of, of when administrative meets clinical. And, in, and by administrative, I, I mean, you know, federal government, regula you know, regulation, but also health plans and payers who sometimes aren't organizing themselves to make lives easy for the people who are trying to serve the members that we care about. There's a, an, a natural tension in that, right? The, the tension is how to scale and be big and have efficiencies and an impact beyond where you are and how to also still have the attributes of being local and community and people-based. So let's kind of take that into the business opportunities. What does that mean about either the pace of growth, the type of business you're going to go after, the kinds of capabilities you're trying to add when you're trying to like dance this fairly delicate dance between being scaled and still having that real human feel? Well, I would say it's, it's better to be good than to be fast. Um, and, um, and I, and I think we are committed to growing and operating, you know, in a means that still preserves, you know, our quality and our level of impact. Um, this is not growth for growth's sake. This is growth uh, to address real community needs. Um, when we started Healthcare in Action, for example, which is one of our four new medical groups, um, we did so because we have an epidemic in plain sight of people experiencing homelessness in California. 
And within a course of less than two years, we've scaled from you know one county to six counties, you know, multiple clinical teams on the ground, more than a thousand patients who see us as their primary care clinician. Um, you know, when you think about the fact that there's 60 or so thousand people who are experiencing homelessness in Southern California, um, or in Los Angeles County, rather, we have incredible opportunities to serve. We just launched our operations in Orange County in partnership with Caloptima. And what I've learned about that county is we've got 6,000 people there who uh, are experiencing homelessness. And that gives us an opportunity to potentially touch every single one of them and establish a primary care relationship and start to establish housing navigation for every single one of those folks. And so, again, I think our goal isn't necessarily to be fast, it, but it is to be good and to meet the needs of the communities that we operate in and that we serve. I'm wondering, um, where are the places where your board is like, go, 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 this is exactly what you, and where are they saying, wow, this is a lot of change, or have you thought about this angle, or is that really a business that we can track? Are there just sort of edges that you're playing around as you're trying to build out a viable business that's also focusing on folks that are historically really underserved. Yeah. I mean, we have an incredible board. These are all folks who I think largely see the problems in American healthcare, understand the issues, understand that we need to catch up because our time studying these problems has far exceeded probably the necessarily allotted time. (laughs) And so um, I think there was a level of impatience at our board around, hey, let's get going to start solving some of these problems. Now we've made, I think, a number of new strategic moves. And so now we're entering that phase where I think like any other board, they're interested in seeing us learn from our failures. Uh, they're interested in us demonstrating success uh, and and you know c- continuing to pivot in the face of changing circumstances. And so I think they've been incredibly supportive. They've applied the right level of, of scrutiny to our decisions. There've been many things that we've it wouldn't feel like it from the outside, but there's many things that we were in the process of getting off the, the ground that were left at the cutting room floor. And that's OK. I mean, that's that's OK. I mean, it, I think they really have refined and pushed our thinking. So I would say it's one of the things I feel really good about is that we have a board that is interested in, I think, SCAN achieving its full potential as an organization. I want to just talk a little bit more about the verticals in two respects. One, I'd like to understand a little bit better the the business model here, because it looks like these are verticals that could, in fact, serve other plans, as you've mentioned, Caloptima yeah. in Orange County. Take us inside the life of one of these verticals, and Healthcare in Action is one I think people are really interested in. And then talk about how this works from a business perspective. Yeah, so I'll just like rewind to kind of where the first seeds of inspiration were were laid for this. You know, when I was an undergraduate student, I volunteered at a homeless shelter and I was a pre-med student at the time. And it was just super clear to me that a lot of why people were homeless or stayed homeless were actually healthcare issues. And that the healthcare system, as I talked to residents of the shelter that I was volunteering at, it was clear that the healthcare system didn't do a great job meeting the needs of people experiencing homelessness. Uh, there was stigma. There's a sense of alienation. Fast forward 20 years, I'm working at Caremore and I'm in our Virginia market. And the main complaint in our operating review that, that week that I was out there was that our sales team was enrolling too many homeless people. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, 
you know, we're a high cost, high need patients company. Why are we worried about enrolling too many homeless people? And of course, it was that they didn't feel like they had enough tools in their toolkit to address their needs. And so when I got to scan, one of the things that I, I told um, our board was that I was very interested in scan getting into the space of homeless medical care for a few reasons. One is, um, it's a little known fact, the fastest growing population of people experiencing homelessness in Southern California is actually older adults. Um, you know, the, the epidemic of, of, of uh, homelessness disproportionately affects senior citizens. So that was something that I think was quite concerning to me. And um, over the preceding couple of years coming out of that experience in Virginia, um, I had done some national advocacy with people like Jim O'Connell um, and John Backus at LA Care uh, to really, you know, potentially introduce a, a new model of health plan called a homeless special needs plan. And it had um, and had actually lobbied the Trump administration as well as the Biden administration uh, about this plan and had gotten some good traction at, from our friends at CMMI. But I wanted to kind of start demonstrating the art of the possible quickly. And, you know, the real premise here is that we pay, health plans will pay lots for emergency room visits. We will pay for hospital stays. We'll pay for ICU stays, wound vacs for non-healing ulcers, amputations for people whose wounds are not treated with the wound vacs. But we won't actually pay for the intensive primary care and behavioral health that people need where they live. And so this is in many ways a grand experiment. Can investments in Intensive investment in primary care and in behavioral health lead to, you know, overall reductions in healthcare spending for health plans. And so, early in my time at Scan, you know, recruited a, a former medical school colleague, Michael Hockman, away from USC, where he had had a lot of exposure to street medicine programs, and said, like, just let's build, let's build this thing. And so, Mike, I think, has done a great job uh, assembling a really wonderful team of people community health workers, nurse practitioners, peer advocates who, you know, literally get on a van every day, you know, and walk the streets and identify people and provide intensive care to them. And I, I would say, I think we're having a renaissance moment in part because of CalAIM, which you referred to, because of the ECM payments, because I think, you know, municipalities are looking for creative solutions, health plans are looking for creative solutions. And so, We've had just tremendous partnership from people at Molina and people at Cal Optima and, um, and LA Care, city governments. Uh, you know, Vinod Kosla wrote a check to bring us to to San Mateo. Um, you know, because it's a common sense idea, and I think that there's a one of the earliest lessons you learn when you're a student of public policy is like how you define a problem actually influences how you solve a problem. And I would say society has like long been on this housing supply track around why people experience homelessness. And certainly there's a housing supply issue in many of the geographies where there is a burden of homelessness. But I would say that there's also alongside it, a big issue around unmet, unmet need from healthcare perspective, uh, behavioral health issues, um, you know, debilitating chronic diseases that are untreated or undertreated. And so um, I think that you know, healthcare has to be part of any solution to homelessness, and that's what you know. Michael Hockman and team are are doing with Healthcare in Action, which is one of our four care delivery subsidiaries that we launched. And you alluded to it, but I think what you're talking about is the ability to launch and lead a, a product or a delivery system that could, in fact, partner with other Medicare plans, other Medicaid plans, potentially commercial. Maybe that would be less 
less of a business opportunity, but is that correct? Is that the right read? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, we set this up as a, as a not-for-profit venture. We thought a lot about whether we should set this up as a for-profit venture. I think there's others who are now doing similar things. The, the main thing I would share is there's just a great product market fit here. <laughs> there's health plans that are paying a lot of high burden of costs um, for a subset of patients. You know, th- these are the true, true super utilizers. Um, and in some cases, they're the grave underutilizers. And so there is an opportunity to really optimize the care for this population. And that's what we're, we're focused on. You've talked about the ask we're making of doctors to screen for social needs. And I think one of the challenges I've been hearing a lot about is naturally we want to, we need to start by asking, like you can't help someone if you don't know what the issues are, but more often than not, the care team, not just the, the, the physicians, but also the nurses and care managers find themselves in this horrible situation of now knowing something that they can't help with. And not and so that natural inclination to say, wouldn't it be easier just not to ask? Because if I have nothing to offer, if I have no, quote, medicine to offer, if I have no solution to offer, that just feels like a really horrible place to be. I'd love to hear from you as you think about that, what are the sets of offerings for social needs you think should be most broadly scaled? You know, what you describe is is almost exactly kind of what we experienced at Caremore when we took care of almost 100,000 uh, Medicare Advantage beneficiaries, California, Arizona, Nevada, and Virginia. And the epidemic in plain sight in that situation was loneliness. And people don't ask about loneliness what is the value of asking someone if they're lonely, if in fact you have nothing to offer them? And so we actually developed intervention. We appointed a chief togetherness officer. Um, we built a team of friendly callers who were both paid employees as well as volunteered volunteers from within our employee base to reach out to people who are experiencing loneliness and connect with them. Um, in some cases, do friendly visitation to their homes. Um, so again, I think you have to have a robust intervention in the same way that doctors didn't screen for diseases that they didn't have means of diagnosing as well as means of treating. The place where I learned that was was actually when I was at Merck, I had the pleasure of working for a guy named Mike Rosenblatt, who is one of the founders of the osteoporosis field. And so much of what Merck had to do when they developed a drug that would improve bone mineral density is they actually had to develop a screening tool for to identify people who had low bone mineral density um, and then, you know, they had to almost define the problem so that they could have then solve the problem with the medicine. And so I think that there's kind of countless examples of that in, in healthcare where we're just not going to address a problem until we have a solution. So some, so much effort needs to be applied to actually building the solution and making it easy for clinicians to prescribe that solution. Um, at Caremore, we had something called prescribed exercise, actually, um, a concept that our founder, Dr. Shelley Zinberg, uh, actually had introduced. And that, you know, was was really a prescription to go to the exercise facility that was right next to the clinic. It was called a nifty after 50. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and they would prescribe exercise uh, as a solution to some of your problems. Uh, and in doing so, I think, raise the level of seriousness around, you know, the exercise, because you now had a prescription pad that said, hey, I, I need you to go next door and get and, and take this very seriously. It's one of the reasons, you know, we're so proud at SCAN 
to contract with Caremore as a provider group because um, I think that it, that that model does make a big difference. And so um, I would just say I think every, everything you're saying is right. And so I think the industry needs to continue to focus on building solutions to these problems so that people feel lower. I think barriers to actually delivering solutions. One of the things I've been watching for but haven't seen yet are formalized partnerships across health plans to build social capacity. What do you think? Is there going to be more cross-plan, cross-organization collaboration to build out what's needed? Or or do you not yet see that coming down the pike? I don't know if there's going to be a lot of cross collaboration in part because I just think the culture of a lot of these organizations is very different. Um, and I would I would say that I think many of us see benefits differentiation as an axis of competition. And I actually wrote a piece in Forbes last week arguing for you know the Medicare Advantage space more and more standardization of benefits because we're in this kind of funny race with each other. One year one plan introduces a pesticide benefit, another one introduces a cash card benefit, another one introduces a transportation benefit with a few bells and whistles. We're not competing on health and health outcomes. We're competing on minor variation and benefits, many of which are actually even hard for patients to access. There is an opportunity for us to standardize the benefits. And if we did standardize the benefits, then I think we could see more of the kind of collaboration that you're talking about. But I do think that's going to be some of the federal reform that should come governing the Medicare Advantage industry. If you thought about state and federal policymakers in both the Medicare and Medicaid space that are trying to address social drivers, what's one piece of advice you'd give them about things to focus on and other things to leave alone? Yeah, it's really interesting. I have like a lot of ambivalence about this, Claudia. I I got, Mm. you know, there's a lot of threads to pull on here. I I would say one of them is the fact that we're not great at delivering healthcare. So what makes us think we can be great at delivering on people's social needs? The second is that, um, I think we've we've complicated the conversation around SDOH and taken on a, an almost paternalistic view uh, of it by saying, "Oh, if you're a poor older person, you need transportation, you need food, you need, you know, and you need it from these four vendors that we've contracted with." Um, and I think we've 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 got to start calling the SDOH problem what it is, which is its poverty. It's people are impoverished and they don't necessarily have access to the things they need. And so maybe the right answer is we need to just actually support them by giving them more income or more disposable income so that they can make the choices that they want to make. I worry about people on the seventh floor of some health plan building talking about the needs and the benefits that they should be delivering to people who they don't all often interact with and they don't often know. And I think what we should be focused more and more on is actually being excellent at the thing that we're empowered to do, that we're most obviously empowered by our our members to do which is to make sure they get great care. I've been thinking a lot lately about the notion of inflection points. Turning 65 is an inflection point. You're Medicare eligible. Your diagnosis of a new chronic disease is an inflection point. The diagnosis of a new malignancy is an inflection point. Your first fall as an older adult is an inflection point. The death of a spouse is an inflection point. And you know, if we're truly going to be experts in delivering senior care, we should be thinking about those inflection points and wrapping around our members and providing exquisite service that both responds to their needs as well as anticipates their needs. I'm actually an advocate for us 
maybe getting a little bit out of the SDOH business because I think it's an overreach on our mandate when we're not even delivering on the thing we're supposed to. It doesn't mean we should not provide some of those benefits, but I do think that there's an arrogance in our industry around these issues. Um, you know, I've had it. I've watched others <laughs> have it. When I'll tell you, just in, in all humility, we had an experience where one of our members was left in the middle of a road by our transportation vendor. You know, those kinds of things make me feel awful and make me think maybe we should we should come up with different solutions for transportation than vending it out to one of the same five companies that 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 provide the transportation. So those are the kinds of things that I think we need to be we need to be like having honest and hard conversations about um, versus continuously ex expanding our mandates while not necessarily delivering on on our core needs. And I think there's a fair amount of virtue signaling around both equity and around social drivers services. Oh, I mean, I mean, Claudia, they're both hustles of a different format. Um, you know, there's there's you know institutes that are being set up, officers of companies being named you know, a thousand link, LinkedIn posts and tweets a day. Um, but then when you ask the question, like what's fundamentally changing for the people that we're actually serving, it's very little, yeah. right? So um, I think that's one of our biggest challenges. Let's focus for a minute on nonprofits because I'd really like to hear your views about what to do. So um, I think both of us have been distressed and not maybe not surprised, but certainly distressed to see the behavior of many nonprofit health organizations looking almost exactly like the behavior of for-profits. And whether that's um, very aggressive anti-competitive moves or huge financial reserves, executive pay, I mean, you kind of name it and you can find it. I, I don't want to spend time talking about the problem. I'd love to hear about potential solutions. Yeah, the solution is, is we, need, we need to, you know, I think it starts with board governance. And I think there's been, you know, since even the earliest days of my education in healthcare, there's been an over fetishization of like other industries and what we can learn from other industries. Um, and we've transported lots of things that shouldn't ever have been transported. Um, so I'll, it starts with that. The second thing is, I think, um, and this sounds quaint and hard to scale, um, and people kind of laugh at me when I talk about this, but we need more ethical leadership in healthcare. What I mean by that is we need to make sure that the words on the wall of every healthcare organization, the ethical compass, the values, the mission statements, the vision statements actually mean something and that the behaviors of leaders and, you know, actually align um, to things. And, and, and I think we've gotten lost in this glib, no margin, no margin, no mission chatter that kind of creates this ethical laxity in organizations to begin doing things like aggressively billing their patients or, you know, going so far as to repossess their assets when they can't pay their bills. These are not the reasons that these organizations were founded. Many of them are even faith-based. So we're so far adrift, you know, from a who we are, you know, perspective, because I think we've, we've allowed an injection of certain kinds of values that should never have been introduced in the first place. I think every healthcare organization in the country should set as its target a 20% reduction in its revenue. And the reason I say that is because most healthcare is delivered fee for service. And if communities are healthier, it means that they're going to consume fewer costlier services. That is not a winning strategy to win a CEO job at a large health system. Trust me, I've, I've 
I've lost a big, big, big job to, you know, kind of pitching just exactly that strategy because I do think healthcare is different and it's not the same as selling hats or operating a bank um, where all you want is your revenues to grow infinitely. Um, and so again, I think we've had aggressive consolidation. And then as a result of the aggressive consolidation, we've driven up prices and there's been no associated, no discernible associated improvement in healthcare quality, none. Um, and I don't care about any health services research <laughs> that's been done on it because I just know that when I called my primary care doctor's office in January for my annual physical, I was given an appointment in July. That's just not how we should be delivering healthcare in this country. So I think we've got big issues that we need to tackle. And it all starts with leadership. I think the crisis that we have, which is that we've confused having a title with being leaders. And we've allowed an administrative class in healthcare that isn't about the things that we want we want it to be about, um, that, that it should be about. I mean, maybe over a beer, we can talk about whether policy action is needed, because my concern is that those same boards are the ones that don't hire the person who wants to reduce revenues. So I'm just, I'm starting to feel more impatient for a serious look at nonprofit status. I don't think, I just don't think they know. I mean, Claudia, a lot of boards are like educated by third parties. I just think a lot of these boards don't really get the physics of healthcare and how in some ways less is more. <laughs> Maybe organizational self-perpetuation shouldn't be the goal. We shouldn't all necessarily feel like we all need to be here forever. In some ways, if if tomorrow the federal government introduced a better better way of taking care of older adults than that which Scan Health Plan offers or any of our subsidiaries offers, on some level we should all just be really happy and pivot scan and its resources to go solve another problem. Um, instead of saying, what about us? What about my program? How does how does your new program affect my ability to deliver my program? Which is kind of the traditional model of, of leadership in our industry. I think I've just read a book that took place in ancient Rome, and I, I don't think this is a new issue. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> to close out, I ask guests two questions. The first is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? Oh, uh, so so many, so many. I mean, I, I think um, I would say candidly, like it's people pay attention to everything. You know, your sort of subtle, um, ge- subtle gestures, your subtle gesticulations, your your presence and um, I think there's just been, you know, whether you cancel or reschedule a meeting and whether you're late to a meeting and it just, and, and all of those things create an impression. And even though you may just be trying to tread water, recognizing that all of those subtleties actually create impressions that then influence your ability to continue to execute on your agenda and do, do the work you care about, um, is something I've, I've learned the hard way. So that's, that's, you know, that's probably my, one of, one of my biggest lessons. And having sat in that seat, it it can be exhausting. And it also means taking that time for rest and recovery is really important because if you're feeling tired and irritated, it's going to show up, right? Well, and then, you know, the truth is, is that actually, I mean, I'll say, um, I would say I'm probably what I would call a recovering work addict, um, meaning like recognizing that workaholism is is just as big a disease as alcoholism and <laughs> it's just as big a like it really is. And so um, I think, you know, your point about 
creating balance in your life is is super important. And that would be another lesson I've learned is is making sure that you are making time for yourself and the other people in your life. And um, and that sometimes that incremental two or three hours of work, which may make you feel good, don't necessarily make anything better for anybody. So. Right. Is there a question you wish I had asked that I didn't? Um, yes. It's like, what would you have done differently? Uh, what would we, what should we have done differently? You know, coming out of the high tech act, because <sighs> you and I lived through that moment. And I feel, I almost feel like daily frustration with some of the misses that we experienced that were avoidable. I'll start with, I just think we did not emphasize interoperability. That should have been the foundation of everything. You, I, you know, you dedicated the last number of years of your career to that. But I think we got super distracted, candidly, Claudia, like with the escalator, um, uh, with the, you know, first it's got to be documented in order to exchange it. On, on some level, we got a little too inside our heads. Um, and then I think that there was a, a lot of advocacy around specific projects and initiatives that got that that distracted us from what I think was the core issue, which was interoperability. And, and probably another thing that sat on my plate which nobody remembers sat on my plate, but I remember was um, was usability actually, um, and the fact that usability and the fact that it sat on my plat- plate probably meant that it was you know just given my low level role at the time, probably meant that it was like everyone's afterthought. Um, but usability and interoperability should probably have been you know number one and two or number two and one depending on your level of priority. And I just feel like we we got all of it wrong. And I guess I would have wanted to see the writing on the wall, which is the biggest barrier to interoperability was not technology. It was not standards. It was people thinking that data was something they could hold hostage for business reasons. And if that had been more evident earlier, I think there could have been an all of government, like, how do we avoid that? Like, how do we say no to that? And how do we... You know, because I think in a way, information blocking is an attempt to do that, but it's a very after the fact attempt to do that. And if you had really driven that when you still had resources to spend on incentives, that's what I'm. That's what I'm talking about, right? Like, if stage one meaningful use was, you're not going to get the biggest checks unless you demonstrate full on interoperability. Well, even you could have said unless 80% of your primary care docs or 100% have ADT notifications. Like I don't care how you get there. You can use standards, you can not use standards, but if all of them know when their patients are discharged, you get the check. Otherwise, no. Yeah, I because I once these tools were standards and certification, I think we fooled ourselves that those were the right tools. Let, let's talk more about that. Yeah, this is a good. I, this one, I, you know, we should have the whole podcast on this one. Exactly. So, yeah, well, next time, next time. nobody would have listened, but no, um. I, no, I think everyone would have listened. There, there's a lot of people. Who oh my goodness! A lot of reflections on that. I love. I'd love to hear more. A big thank you to Dr. Jane for joining me on the podcast. I left the conversation thinking about nonprofit healthcare in the U.S. today. It looks a lot like the for-profit sector, pursuing margin, not mission, making big financial bets, sending people with medical debt to collectors, and aggressively fending off competitors. This model is not going to deliver the people-first, community-driven, whole-person health approach we need in America. So where do we go from here? Is scaling a nonprofit with a deep commitment to purpose, like Sachin is trying to do at SCAN, the best alternative? Or do we need the community-embedded approaches we heard about from Brad Gilbert and IHP? Or maybe we need both. 
We will continue to explore this question on future episodes, so stay tuned. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for links to more information on SCAN and about our guest, Dr. Sachin Jain. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.